This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is August 17th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. My name is Lee Harris, and I was at Hofstra Radio between 1973 and 1975. And what shows or programs did you work on at WVHC? Well, I was kind of an unusual case in that uh, I was not a Hofstra student. In fact, I was still in high school when I came to what was then WVHC. And uh, the reason I was uh, allowed in is that a friend of mine and I were both possessors of uh, something you really kind of needed to work at WVHC at the time, and that was the FCC third-class license with broadcast endorsement. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was a... uh, you know, license of sorts that was required if you were going to operate the transmitter at WVHC. And the trick was that apparently, I think the uh, admission standards at Hofstra were maybe a bit lower back then. And a lot of the people at WVHC apparently couldn't pass this, you know, relatively simple test to get this license. I passed it when I was 14, but I was, you know, totally into radio and everything to me about it was fascinating. And my friend Phil Avner did too. So uh, we showed up, presented ourselves with our licenses and, uh, you know, offered to run the board or whatever, you know, they would allow us to do. And uh, Jeff Krause, who was running the place at the time, very reluctantly allowed us into WVHC. Wow. Uh, if I could go back a little bit, what was it about radio that, that drew you in? Were there particular stations or DJs that you listened to that intrigued you? Yeah, I think the thing that first caught my attention was I heard people working three hours a day. And <laughs> I thought that that would be, uh, you know, good kind of work for me. It was the 1970s. Everybody was kind of lazy back then. But I was actually a WVHC listener as well, uh, particularly on Sunday nights to Fulton's Folly, which we thought was uh, very funny. We didn't realize that some of the bits they were playing were not produced at Hofstra, but rather were you know, Monty Python bits and things that they had lifted from other shows. We thought that they were, you know, comedic geniuses, Tom Curley and the crew. So WVHC was already kind of on our radar. We didn't have as many radio choices back then. And uh, we did like some of the music they played on WVHC, those of us attending uh, Oceanside High School. And uh, WVHC came in uh, pretty good over there, even though it was only, you know, 320 watts off of the uh, John C. Adams Playhouse at the time, didn't have the signal it has today. And of course, uh, over the air was the only the only way to listen. So um, we we knew about WVHC. We, we liked radio. Obviously, there weren't too many radio stations, real radio stations that were going to let us in the door. We had our little pirate radio station that we... Uh, ran back in Oceanside. That provided us with a lot of the skill sets we needed when we showed up finally at WVHC. You know, we sort of knew what to do at a radio station. We just hadn't uh, been able to lay our hands on real broadcasting equipment up until that point. When you say pirate radio station, what does that mean? Well, this was an unlicensed uh, radio station that we cobbled together from our, uh, you know, consumer-grade audio equipment. And uh, back then, Radio Shack, which Mm -hmm. was still in business, sold something called the FM wireless microphone module. It was supposed to, uh, you know, let you broadcast to a radio 50 feet away, let's say, with with a microphone. But if you modded it a little bit and hooked it up to the TV antenna on your roof, you could maybe uh, get it to go a mile which is what we did. 
and you know, get people in the neighborhood to listen. And we got, uh, you know, what we thought was a pretty professional sounding radio station out of this thing that I think sold for $2.50 at the time. Wow. Wow. Um, so to double back, do you remember any of the names of the shows that you were allowed to engineer or produce or work on? Yes. Initially, uh, I wound up doing some of the classical shows. Uh, WVHC, by the way, during the week was only on six hours a day. They were on from uh, 6 p.m. to midnight. We would sign on at 5.55, and uh, often there would be a recorded classical program, maybe followed by uh, a live classical program and that it had a live announcer. And I remember uh, specifically working on a program with a woman named Maria Mamarinos, and uh, she was on Monday nights, I believe. And she had a nasty tendency not to show up for the show. Oh. So on uh, one Monday evening, I decided to uh, go for broke. I knew a, a bit about classical music. I kind of knew how to pronounce the, uh, the artists, uh, the composers. I knew it was Mozart and not Mozart and, uh, you know, Wagner and not Wagner. So um, I cracked open the mic and, you know, said, uh, Maria Mamarinos can't join us tonight, but, uh, you know, here's the uh, Beethoven String Quartet, uh, Kerschel number 552 in, in D minor, you know, by the uh, Hofstra String Quartet or whatever. And uh, I guess I did a good enough job that they gave me the show. Wow. That's, that's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, I, I know from speaking to a few other folks who joined Hofstra Radio as teenagers, they were allowed to engineer or produce things, but not necessarily allowed on air. But it seems like you took the next step and, and went for it and got cleared. Well, the secret about the classical music programming is that uh, most people wanted nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. And since it was the path of least resistance, uh, I was able to do that. From an engineering standpoint, by the way, the most challenging program to engineer was Swede Olson, who did the polka show. And the problem with polka, don't forget, we're playing everything off of vinyl back mm -hmm. then. And to get a tight-sounding radio station required a fair amount of manual dexterity. Mm -hmm. So the most challenging program to engineer was Sweet Olson's Polka Party because the polkas were fast, they were short, and they all ended cold. And Sweet Olson was a stickler for you know having everything be tight. He didn't want any dead air on his show. So uh, engineering for Sweet Olson was like you know engineering the old WABC. It was really really frantic, required a lot of concentration, and uh, only the very best board operators could uh, could engineer Sweet, Sweet Olson. And he did let me do it uh, once in a while. So that to us was the, uh, the apex of uh, board operations at WVHC. At the bottom end of the scale would be the classical shows where dead air was actually kind of required. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, maybe it wasn't between every song, but Swede did an air break quite often, if not every song, every other song or so. Well, at, at least. And, you know, very often what he would do is uh, segue two records and he'd talk over the record and uh, that was coming out of it. So it was a very difficult format to execute properly. Uh, I would say it was right up there with the most produced top 40 radio that you could hear at the time, WABC or 99X or whatever was out there. And that's kind of what we liked about it, too, because we figured if we could handle Sweet Olson, we could probably work, uh, you know, weekend relief at WABC, which a bunch of guys from WVHC wound up doing. Mm. Um, 
when you got on the air, once you took over that that classical show, did you use your own name? Did you have an on-air name? No, I used my my real name. It didn't occur to me to have a, a fake name. And I guess I was good enough at it that they offered me what I what I'm still very proud of to this day, which is I got to do the live broadcasts of the Hofstra String Quartet from the John C. Adams Playhouse on Friday night. So uh, I would go up in the control booth, uh, high up, high up in the rafters, and I'd have an engineer, a guy named uh, Michael Billiter, as a matter of fact, I recall his name, and we would sit up there, and at 8 o'clock, they would throw the station to us, and my job was to introduce the quartet and fill the time until they actually showed up on the stage. Now, they weren't particularly concerned with our live broadcast and uh, being on time for that, and I knew that, I was told that, so I made a point of preparing a lot of material so that if I had to fill, I could fill. And I put together like 10 minutes of material. And the very first night I got up there and uh, figuring, you know, they'll come out in a couple of minutes and I won't have to use most of this material. Uh, I wound up having to use all of it. I started circling back and repeating it because they weren't coming out for some reason. So now it's 810, it's 812, it's 815. And uh, rather ignominiously, I had to throw it back to the station, which was like the worst thing you could, you know, have to do. And I don't think they came out till about 8.30. But after that, it went a lot more smoothly. I kind of got a, a, a feel for it. And I very, you know, I felt big time. I would put on, uh, you know, a little sport coat and, uh, you know, get all dressed up for or what passed for dressed up in the 1970s. And uh, mind you, at the time, I am 16 years old. Mm -hmm. Was this a program that already existed and you took over, or was this a brand new thing? It was seasonal, and apparently it had been on the air before. I don't know um, who did it. Possibly, uh, we had a couple of really good uh, classical music announcers on staff, uh, notably a guy named Kev Riley, who was you know, certainly good enough to be working commercial radio in a short time after that uh, he did. And I paid a lot of attention uh, to what, what he had to tell me because I, I thought he had the stuff. Not sure if he had ever done that particular broadcast, but uh, it, it had been done before. I had just never heard it before I did okay. it. Okay. So obviously you've got this, this interest in radio. You're doing your pirate, pirate radio thing. You apply for and get your FCC license. Um, I'd like to go back to what is it that was, was there a particular instance that made you show up at Hofstra? And then if you could tell us like maybe who that you met, who you met at the time or what the station was like or where it was or what your impression of the station was. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it wasn't where it is today, mm -hmm. obviously. And uh, I think the people who are at WRHU today, if they saw some pictures of what was then WVHC, they'd have a, they'd have a big laugh. It was in the basement of the little theater. And you went down a flight of steps in, into the basement and it was a very small but well-designed facility. They had a control room, they had a studio, they had a, a news booth, and a record library, and that was the whole place. Uh, but it had decent equipment, older but decent equipment, very, very professionally laid out. And so when I was there, I felt like I was at a real radio station because it was run like a real radio station. The people I had contact with were... Kit Hunt, she was the, the program director and uh, a bit of a perfectionist. I don't think she particularly, you know, liked me, wants a bunch of, 
you know, high school kids hanging around their college radio station. And that was a funny thing mm-hmm. is that, uh, you know, the college people, particularly those who were uh, juniors or seniors, seemed like, you know, really old adults from where I was sitting. Uh, Phil Selby was the executive engineer. He wasn't the chief engineer, but he was the guy who scheduled all of the board operators, also uh, somebody who ran a very professional uh, tight shop, had some contact with uh, Jeff Krause, who, again, I don't think was also uh, very enthusiastic about having us there, but he needed my friend Phil and I and our licenses. And eventually we had two other guys from Oceanside High School who also had these licenses, and uh, they showed up down there as well because they, they just needed it. In fact, at one point... I was actually teaching Hofstra students how to pass the test. I actually gave little classes on, uh, you know, how to pass this broadcast endorsement uh, um, test with uh, the third class FCC. It was 100 multiple choice questions, you know, things you would never actually wind up using in your, in your real life, like, you know, what is the uh, plate voltage times the plate current equal and how many times uh, an hour must you give an official station identification, things like that. So I was in high school teaching kids who were in college. Wow. That's uh, that's a credit to you. But again, it, it, I, you hinted that there's some uneasy feelings, but I'm sure that the people that wanted to pass the test were grateful for the information. And most of the people down there were very friendly to me. And even the ones who were a little hostile at the outset eventually uh, decided uh, I I had a place there. And there was uh, an annual awards dinner that uh, was at a restaurant and they would hand out, you know, best, best overall program, best sports cast, best this, best that. And uh, I attended this with all of these college kids. I'm still in high school. I don't think I had a driver's license yet. And I won for best classical program. And I got a wooden plaque uh, engraved with the title of the show and my name on it. And it was handed to me by Jeff Krause, who smiled at me and shook my hand. And after that, there was an after hours party at somebody's house in, in Uniondale. I forget who. But, uh, you know, there was, uh, there was alcohol and there was marijuana. And uh, that was probably getting the award, not the after party, was uh, probably the highlight of my time at WVHC. I really felt like uh, I was part of the gang, even though I never went to Hofstra, not for one mm. minute. Well, congratulations on, on the award. I'm sure it still holds a, uh, an important place in your, in your heart and in your, in your memory. Um, in my, in that, which is the only place it is, because you know God knows what happened right, to it. Right. So, uh, just a logistical question: You're you're in high school. How did you get back and forth to the radio station? And and you know, at these odd hours, you know, you're going there in the evening and on weekends. Yeah, uh, frequently I rode my bicycle from from Oceanside, which was about ten miles, and uh, I lied a little bit to my parents. Uh, what I would tell them is that uh, people from the station with driver's licenses and cars, uh, were dropping me off at night. In reality, I don't think that ever happened more than once or twice. Uh, I was riding my bike home after midnight uh, through Freeport and Roosevelt and whatnot. I never had any trouble uh, doing that, but uh, you know, it speaks to the difference between uh, then and now. In the 1970s, I think even if my parents had found out the truth, they, they wouldn't have been too bothered by it. Eventually, uh, when I turned 17, I did have a driver's license. But by then, 
uh, I was really spending a lot more time at uh, a couple of other radio stations where they were paying mm-hmm. me. So uh, I'm still involved with WBHC, but I just didn't have the time I had before. I, I think it's interesting that you're talking about teaching some of the undergrads about what it takes to pass the FCC test. Uh, but I get, I guess there wasn't really a training program at the time, or did anybody, uh, it seems like you came in with some knowledge beforehand, but were there other courses or, or ways of instruction to teach new undergraduates how to be on the air? No, I really, I really don't know. I presume if you were a student, they were, you know, radio production courses or something of that nature, but I was never exposed to them because I was, uh, I was never a student there. So uh, we learned on the job, you know, you came in for a couple of shifts, you watched uh, other people run the board, and then they uh, let you try it, which, by the way, is you know, the same way we do it at uh, the place I work now, 1010 Wins. It's, uh, it's not any different. Yeah, you observe, uh, you are observed, and if uh, they think you've got a handle on it, they just let you go. There are going to be mistakes and errors, and believe me, there were plenty uh, which did not go unnoticed, but uh, eventually, you know, you get the reps down and you get the skill set and away you go. Were there any people on the air or people who were working there that, that were doing interesting things or good things that you thought, oh, I should, I should pay more attention to that or do this? Or was it, again, just sort of in the air and you're just absorbing it as you go along? Yeah, I mean, I knew enough about radio even at that age from having listened to it and listened to a lot of New York radio that uh, I understood that most of the people on the air at WVHC were not going to go on to be uh, professionals on the air. There were a couple that I did pay uh, definite attention to. One of them was the uh, the aforementioned Kev Riley, who uh, did go on to a pretty decent career in, in broadcasting. And uh, maybe one or two others, a guy I liked... Um, was the guy who did the uh, the, the jazz show. He was a, a bus driver uh, for Nassau County. Fred, you know, name is escaping me for a moment, had a great deep voice, kind of sounded like Barry White. And I just like the idea that this guy who was a bus driver in real life could uh, come in and do this uh, pretty professional jazz show. He was another one who uh, was very uh, much of a stickler as to his uh, board hopping if you were working for him. Mm. Hmm, that's impressive. When do you, when do you think you felt comfortable being on the air? Was it was it right away, or was it or was there a moment where you thought, "Yep, this is I'm definitely on the right track." No, I was astonishingly nervous uh, most of the time I was on the air. There, uh, one of the things you got to do is if you if you were the board op and you did the sign on. They had uh, prepared every day a list of the programs that would be coming up that day. So you would play the Star Spangled Banner. And I think then they had some kind of like Dick Hyman uh, Moog version of Hooray for Hollywood that was the bed for the announcement of what was coming up. And so that was probably the first time I got on the air and uh, reading reading that announcement, trying, trying not to blow it. I think after a while with the live classical concerts, um, where things were out of my hands for the most part, I began to get a bit more comfortable being being in front of a microphone and not worrying so much what what people thought. But it definitely definitely took a while, and even you know even to this day, occasionally, uh, if there is something out of the ordinary going on, <clears throat> I might get uh, a wee bit nervous. Although at this point, it doesn't make any sense. What am I getting nervous for? Um, in terms of getting comfortable with the people at the station, you've kind of alluded to this, but it's, it seems like there's a little bit of skepticism, but people 
welcomed you in and and heard what you had to do uh had had to offer and and gave you a chance do you feel like you felt socially comfortable there after a while or was there any incident where you thought okay they're 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 with me here i feel good here yeah again for the most part everybody uh, was very friendly once in a while you'd get you'd get a you'd get a hint of uh hostility but usually not from anybody important. Like I said, I detected that uh, Jeff Krause, who was a, a great man of whom, uh, you know, everybody was in fear for the most part. He had a very commanding voice and presence. And uh, it, would, it would have been interesting to run into him as an adult and see what my impression of him was uh, as a grown-up, but as a, as a child, uh, he was definitely intimidating. And uh, the whole situation, a real radio station, to my way of thinking, uh, was, a, was a little bit intimidating. One thing that was interesting is that WVHC was such a tight ship that I was really worried what it was going to be like when I went to work at a commercial radio station. As it turns out, none of them, up including the one I work for today, uh, has ever been as tightly run as WVHC. They all tended to be a little, you know, haphazard by comparison. Could, could you clarify a little bit more about what you mean about running a tight ship? I, I imagine there's there's certain things that you have to do or the expectations. Is that, is that what it is? Yeah, you had, to, you had to be a good board op if you were a board op. You had to be a good announcer if you were an announcer. You had to show up on time. Uh, people got suspended with regularity for uh, doing things that they were not supposed to do. And I just felt like it was very tightly and professionally managed in a way that no radio station I have worked for since, and I've worked for some of the big ones, uh, really matched. Mm. I, I think that some of, by design for Jeff, because you, you talk about him being an intimidating, intimidating presence, and you as a teenager see him as an adult. And if we think about the timeline, Jeff at that point would have probably been in his mid-30s. And yes. from a very yeah, old but, man, right? When you're when you're 16, that's that's positively ancient. But but by our standards today, he was still a relatively young man. But it seems like he put on this projection of being an older person and, and a more austere person, uh, perhaps as a as a means of running the station, as you say, as as tightly as he did. Yeah, he had the beard and the pipe, and uh, he came off very very professorial. So uh, it was a it was a good luck and a good presentation for him. It got the job done. Okay. So we have the benefit of hindsight. Obviously, you have this relationship with Hofstra Radio that you've carried with you through the years, and we can look back at these stories fondly. But can you go back to your mindset as a 15, 16 year old when you make that decision to ride your bicycle to the Hofstra campus and say, I would like to work here? What did you hope Hofstra Radio would mean and what did it become? I felt that it would probably be the thing I could put on my resume that would get me a job at a commercial radio station. I would have the experience I needed to work commercially, which by that point I sort of decided I wanted to do. And it seemed to me that that would be a good path. And I sort of knew that people who had worked at WVHC were working at radio stations all over Long Island and uh, some of them in the, in the city. Uh, one of the people who made a major impression upon me because I was very interested in the technical side of radio was uh, Ted Ronenberger, who was not only the chief engineer of WVHC, he was the chief engineer of 
what was then WORFM and later 99X. And this, to me, was an enormous radio station, and that was an enormous responsibility. That meant that he got to go up to the top of the Empire State mm -hmm. Building, you know, every day and check the transmitter up there. You know, this was, uh, this was a god among men, as far as I was concerned. And he was very helpful. In fact, every Sunday he would come out and uh, check the transmitter on top of the John C. Adams Playhouse at the time. And he did invite me up uh, one week to watch him do this. And it was the first time I had ever laid eyes on a radio transmitter, which, you know, to me was a piece of mm -hmm. magic. I was a little surprised to find out that it, you know, kind of looked like a refrigerator with meters on it. I don't know what I was expecting. But um, still, you know, that was a big moment for me when he did that. It's kind of seeing behind the curtain and see how seeing how the magic is made. And even if it doesn't look that impressive, still, that's that's not something even most dedicated radio people get to see. So that that must have been uh, quite a great honor for him to invite you along. I don't imagine everybody got that invite. I don't imagine too many people were actually interested in having the invite. That's the, uh, the thing I've come to learn over the years, that uh, things that fascinate me don't necessarily fascinate other people. But, uh, you know, we do have this fraternity of radio geeks who would be uh, who would be moved by that story. Hmm. Well, Lee, this has been fantastic. I, I, I'm really honored that you took the time to share your time and your your stories here. And uh, and and I greatly appreciate you being part of uh, the history of Hofstra Radio. Very welcome. I owe Hofstra a lot and I do um, enjoy being a member of the uh, Hofstra Radio Hall of Fame, the initial class, as a matter of fact. Occasionally, I do get, uh, you know, called out to MC an event or otherwise participate. And uh, recently had some fun appearing at the Talkers Conference at Hofstra. And that took place in uh, the John Adams Playhouse. And I let the people uh, at Talkers know. I said, uh, you know, one of the highlights of my radio career took place in, uh, in this very hall. And uh, I don't think they were overly impressed, but, uh, but I was. Well, it must have been a, a, a nice to have a different view as opposed to being up in the in the rafters. You were you were on stage. Yeah, I don't, even, nice. I don't even play the cello. So how about that? Well, this this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. All right, Brian.